Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. 
This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on patreon.com. Lynette Smith and Sherry Youngward. Thank you both so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, these names that I just read are brand new patrons on Patreon.com, where you can go and support creators of the work they like. So, if you'd like your name read on the opening credits of the next show, and the Sleepy Podcast maybe helps you get a better night's rest, and you want access to cool perks like extra poetry readings, um, then go to patreon.com and donate. No matter how much you pledge, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. Um, And at $5 a month, like our two new patrons this week, uh, you get access to all kinds of poetry readings that are not on the normal podcast feed. And now is definitely a good time to start donating as this week um, we have an exclusive interview with Jenna Rose Nethercott. She is an author and a poet and I read the Lumberjack stuff on the show uh, a while back and it got such an amazing response. She's such a talented writer. Um, So tune in tomorrow uh, to the poetry feed if you're a patron to listen to a wonderful interview about Jenna Rose and her work and how she sleeps. Um, It's a really, really fun little interview. It was a pleasure to do. So if you'd like access to that interview and all kinds of other poetry readings that are not on the normal podcast feed, then just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio to donate. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover of For Sleepy is by Gracie Kana. Tonight, I'm going to be turning back to a short story that I've actually never read before in this wonderful little collection of short stories from, as you know, my personal favorite, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and this short story is called Endicott and the Red Cross. So, without further ado, another wonderful short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne for you to pass out to. I'm going to read this story one time through, and then you're going to hear it repeated, so 
so that you can fall asleep and stay deep asleep. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. and the Red Cross. At noon of an autumnal day more than two centuries ago, the English colors were displayed by the standard bearer of the Salem train band, which had mustered for material exercise under the orders of George Endicott. It was a period when the religious exiles were accustomed often to buckle on their armor and practice the handling of their weapons of war. Since the first settlement of New England, his prospects had never been so dismal. The dissensions between Charles I and his subjects were then, and for several years afterwards, confined to the floor of Parliament. The measures of the king and ministry were rendered more tyrannically violent by an opposition which had not yet acquired sufficient confidence in its own strength to resist royal injustice with the sword. The bigoted and haughty primate, Laud, Archbishop of Canterbury, controlled the religious affairs of the realm, and was consequently invested with powers which might have wrought the utter ruin of the two Puritan colonies, Plymouth and Massachusetts. There is evidence on record that our forefathers perceived their danger, but were resolved that their infant country should not fall without a struggle, even beneath the giant strength of the king's right arm. Such was the aspect of the times when the folds of the English banner, with the red cross in its field, were flung out over a company of Puritans. Their leader, the famous Endicott was a man of stern and resolute countenance, the effect of which was heightened by a grizzled beard that swept the upper portion of his breastplate. This piece of armor was so highly polished that the whole surrounding scene had its image in the glittering seal. The central object in the mirrored picture was an edifice of humble architecture, with neither steeple nor bell to proclaim it, what, nevertheless it was, the house of prayer. A token of the perils of the wilderness was seen in the grim head of a wolf, which had just been slain within the precincts of the town, and according to the regular mode of claiming the bounty, was nailed on the porch of the meeting house. The blood was still plashing on the doorstep. There happened to be visible, at the same noontide hour, so many other characteristics of the times and manners of the Puritans that we must endeavor to represent them in a sketch. Though, 
far less vividly than they were reflected in the polished breastplate of George Endicott. In close vicinity to the sacred edifice appeared that important engine of puritanic authority, the whipping post, with the soil around it well trodden by the feet of evildoers who had there been disciplined. At one corner of the meeting house was the pillory, and at the other, the stocks, and by a singular good fortune for our sketch, the head of the Episcopalian and suspected Catholic was grotesquely encased in the former machine, while a fellow criminal who had boisterously quaffed a health to the king was confined by the legs in a ladder. Side by side, on the meeting-house steps stood a male and female figure. The man was a tall, lean, haggard personification of fanaticism, bearing on his breast this label, a wanton gospeler, which betokened that he had dared to give interpretations of holy writ unsanctioned by the infallible judgment of the civil and religious rulers. His aspect showed no lack of zeal to maintain his heterodoxies, even at the stake. The woman wore a cleft stick on her tongue, inappropriate retribution for having wagged that unruly member against the elders of the church, and her countenance and gestures gave much cause to apprehend that, the moment the stick should be removed, a repetition of the offense would demand new ingenuity and chastising it. The above-mentioned individuals had been sentenced to undergo their various modes of ignominy for the space of one hour at noonday. But among the crowd were several whose punishment would be lifelong, some whose ears had been cropped like those of puppy dogs others whose cheeks had been branded with the initials of their misdemeanors, one with his nostrils slit and seared, and another with a halter about his neck, which he was forbidden ever to take off or to conceal beneath his garments. Methinks he must have been grievously tempted to affix the other end of the rope to some convenient beam or bow, There was likewise a young woman with no mean share of beauty whose doom it was to wear the letter A on the breast of her gown in the eyes of all the world and her own children. And even her own children knew what that initial signified. Sporting with her infamy, the lost and desperate creature had embroidered the fatal token in scarlet cloth with golden thread and the nicest art of needlework, so that the capital A might have been thought to mean admirable, or anything rather than adulterous. Let not the reader argue, from any of these evidences of iniquity, that the times of the Puritans were more vicious than our own, when, as we pass along the very street of this sketch, we discern no badge of infamy on man or woman. 
It was the policy of our ancestors to search out even the most secret sins and expose them to shame without fear or fervor in the broadest light of the noonday sun. Were such the custom now, perchance we might find materials for a no less piquant sketch than the above. Except the malefactors whom we have described and the diseased or infirm persons, the whole male population of the town between sixteen years and sixty were seen in the ranks of the train band. A few stately Native Americans and all the pomp and dignity of the Indian stood gazing at the spectacle. Their flint-headed arrows were but childish weapons compared to the matchlocks of the Puritans who would have rattled harmlessly against the steel caps and hammered iron breastplates which enclosed each soldier in an individual fortress. The valiant John Endicott glanced with an eye of pride at his sturdy followers and prepared to renew the martial toils of the day. Come, my stout hearts, quoth he, drawing his sword. Let us show these poor heathen that we can handle our weapons like men of might. Well for them, if they put us not to prove it in earnest. The iron-breasted company straightened their line, and each man drew the heavy butt of his matchlock close to his left foot, thus awaiting the orders of the captain. But as Endicott glanced right and left along the front, he discovered a personage at some little distance with whom it behooved him to hold a parley. It was an elderly gentleman, wearing a black cloak and band and a high-crowned hat, beneath which was a velvet skullcap, the whole being the garb of a Puritan minister. This reverend person bore a staff which seemed to have been recently cut in the forest, and his shoes were bemired as if he had been traveling on foot through the swamps of the wilderness. His aspect was perfectly that of a pilgrim, heightened also by an apostolic dignity. Just as Endicott perceived him, he laid aside his staff and stooped to drink at a bubbling fountain which gushed into the sunshine about a score of yards from the corner of the meeting house. But, ere the good man drank, he turned his face heavenward in thankfulness, and then, holding back his gray beard with one hand, he scooped up his simple draft in the hollow of the other. What, oh, good Mr. Williams, shouted Endicott, you are welcome back again to our own town of peace. How does our worthy governor Winthrop? And what news from Boston? The governor hath his health, worshipful sir, answered Roger Williams, now resuming his staff and drawing near. And for the news, here is a letter which, 
knowing I was to travel hitherward today, His Excellency committed to my charge. Belike it contains tidings of much import, for a ship arrived yesterday from England. Mr. Williams, the Minister of Salem, and of course known to all the spectators, had now reached the spot where Endicott was standing under the banner of his company and put the governor's epistle in his hand. The broad seal was impressed with Winthrop's coat of arms. Endicott hastily unclosed the letter and began to read, while, as his eye passed down the page, a wrathful change came over his manly countenance. The blood glowed through it, till it seemed to be kindling with an internal heat, nor was it unnatural to suppose that his breastplate would likewise become red-hot with the angry fire of the bosom which it covered. Arrive, <clears throat> cut this a little bit. Arriving at the conclusion, he shook the letter fiercely in his hand so that it rustled as loud as the flag above his head. Black tidings these, Mr. Williams, said he. Blacker never came to New England. Dallas, you know their purport. Yea, truly, replied Roger Williams, for the governor consulted respecting this matter with my brethren in the ministry at Boston, and my opinion was likewise asked. And His Excellency entreats you by me that the news be not suddenly noised abroad, lest the people be stirred up into some outbreak, and thereby give the king and the archbishop a handle against us. The governor is a wise man, a wise man, and a meek and moderate, said Endicott, setting his teeth grimly. Nevertheless, I must do according to my own best judgment. There is neither man, woman, nor child in New England, but has a concern as dear as life in these tidings. And if John Endicott's voice be loud enough, man, woman, and child shall hear them. Soldiers, wheel into a hollow square. Oh, good people, here are the news for one and of all of you. The soldiers closed in around their captain, and he and Roger Williams stood together under the banner of the Red Cross, while the women and the aged men pressed forward, and the mothers held up their children to look Endicott in the face. A few taps of the drum gave signal for silence and attention. Fellow soldiers, fellow exiles, began Endicott, speaking under strong excitement, yet powerfully restraining it. Wherefore did ye leave your native country? Wherefore, I say, have we left the green and fertile fields, the cottages, or perchance the old gray halls where we were born and bred, the churchyards where our forefathers lie buried? Wherefore have we come hither, to set up our own tombstones in the wilderness. A howling wilderness it is. 
the wolf and the bear meet us within the halloo of our dwellings. The native lieth in wait for us in the dismal shadow of the woods. The stubborn roots of the trees break our plowshares when we would till the earth. Our children cry for bread, and we must dig in the sands of the seashore to satisfy them. Wherefore, I say again, have we sought this country of a rugged soil and wintry sky? Was it not for the enjoyment of our civil rights? Was it not for liberty to worship God according to our conscience? Call you this liberty of conscience, interrupted a voice on the steps of the meeting house. It was the wanton gospeler. A sad and quiet smile flitted across the mild visage of Roger Williams. But Endicott, in the excitement of the moment, shook his sword wrathfully at the culprit, an ominous gesture from a man like him. What hast thou to do with conscience, thou knave, cried he. I said liberty to worship God, not license to profane and ridicule him. Break not upon my speech, or I will lay thee neck and heels till this time tomorrow. Hearken to me, friends, nor he that accursed rhapsodist. As I was saying, we have sacrificed all things, and have come to a land whereof the old world hath scarcely heard, that we might make a new world unto ourselves, and painfully seek a path from hence to heaven. But what think ye now? This son of a Scotch tyrant, this grandson of a papistical and adulterous Scotch woman, whose death proved that a golden crown doth not always save an anointed head from the block. Nay, brother, nay, interposed Mr. Williams, thy words are not meet for a secret chamber, far less for a public street. Hold thy peace, Roger Williams, answered Endicott imperiously. My spirit is wiser than thine for the business now in hand. I tell ye, fellow exiles, that Charles of England and Laud, our bitter sweet persecutor, archpriests of Canterbury, are resolute to pursue us even hither. They are taking counsel, saith this letter send over a governor-general in whose breast shall be deposited all the law and equity of the land. They are minded also to establish the idolatrous forms of English episcopacy, so that when Laud shall kiss the Pope's toe as Cardinal of Rome, he may deliver New England, bound hand and foot, into the power of his master. A deep groan from the auditors, a sound of wrath, as well as fear and sorrow, responded to this intelligence. Look ye to it, brethren, resumed Endicott, with increasing energy. If this king and this arch prelate have their will, 
we shall briefly behold a cross on the spire of this tabernacle which we have builded, and a high altar within its walls, with wax tapers burning round it at noonday. We shall hear the sacring bell, and the voices of the Romish priests saying the mass. But think ye, Christian men, that these abominations may be suffered without a sword drawn, without a shot fired, without blood spilled, yea, on the very stairs of the pulpit. No. Be ye strong of hand and stout of heart. Here we stand on our own soil, which we have bought with our goods, which we have won with our swords, which we have cleared with our axes, which we have tilled with the sweat of our brows, which we have sanctified with our prayers to the God that brought us hither. Who shall enslave us here? What have we to do with this mitred prelate, with this crowned king? What have we to do with England? Endica gazed round at the excited countenances of the people, now full of his own spirit, and then turned suddenly to the standard bearer who stood close behind him. Officer, lower your banner, said he. The officer obeyed, and brandishing his sword, Endicott thrust it through the cloth, and with his left hand rent the red cross completely out of the banner. He then waved the tattered ensign above his head. Sacrilegious wretch, cried the high churchman in the pillory, unable longer to restrain himself. Thou hast rejected the symbol of our holy religion. Treason, treason, roared the royalist in the stocks. He hath defaced the king's banner. Before God and man, I will avouch the deed, answered Endicott. Beat a flourish, drummer. Shout, soldiers and people, in honor of the ensign of New England. Neither pope nor tyrant hath part in it now. With a cry of triumph, the people gave their sanction to one of the boldest exploits which our history records. And forever, honor be the name of Endicott. We look back through the mist of ages and recognize in the rending of the Red Cross from New England's banner the first omen of that deliverance which our fathers consummated after the bones of the stern Puritan had lain more than a century in the dust. Endicott and the Red Cross. At noon of an autumnal day more than two centuries ago, the English colors were displayed by the standard bearer of the Salem train band, which had mustered for material exercise under the orders of George Endicott. 
It was a period when the religious exiles were accustomed often to buckle on their armor and practice the handling of their weapons of war. Since the first settlement of New England, his prospects had never been so dismal. The dissensions between Charles I and his subjects were then, and for several years afterwards, confined to the floor of Parliament. The measures of the king and ministry were rendered more tyrannically violent by an opposition which had not yet acquired sufficient confidence in its own strength to resist royal injustice with the sword. The bigoted and haughty primate, Laud, Archbishop of Canterbury, controlled the religious affairs of the realm and was consequently invested with powers which might have wrought the utter ruin of the two Puritan colonies, Plymouth and Massachusetts. There is evidence on record that our forefathers perceived their danger, but were resolved that their infant country should not fall without a struggle, even beneath the giant strength of the king's right arm. Such was the aspect of the times when the folds of the English banner, with the red cross in its field, were flung out over a company of Puritans. Their leader, the famous Endicott, was a man of stern and resolute countenance, the effect of which was heightened by a grizzled beard that swept the upper portion of his breastplate. This piece of armor was so highly polished that the whole surrounding scene had its image in the glittering seal. The central object in the mirrored picture was an edifice of humble architecture, with neither steeple nor bell to proclaim it, what nevertheless it was, the house of prayer. A token of the perils of the wilderness was seen in the grim head of a wolf, which had just been slain within the precincts of the town, and according to the regular mode of claiming the bounty, was nailed on the porch of the meeting house. The blood was still plashing on the doorstep. There happened to be visible at the same noontide hour so many other characteristics of the times and manners of the Puritans that we must endeavor to represent them in a sketch, though far less vividly than they were reflected in the polished breastplate of George Endicott. In close vicinity to the sacred edifice appeared that important engine of puritanic authority, the whipping post, with the soil around it well trodden by the feet of evildoers who had there been disciplined. At one corner of the meeting house was the pillory, and at the other the stocks, and by a singular good fortune for our sketch, the head of the Episcopalian and suspected Catholic was grotesquely encased in the former machine, while a fellow criminal who had boisterously quaffed a health to the king was confined by the legs in a ladder. Side by side, on the meeting house steps, stood a male and female figure. The man was a tall, lean, haggard personification of fanaticism, 
bearing on his breast this label, a wanton gospeler, which betoken that he had dared to give interpretations of holy writ, unsanctioned by the infallible judgment of the civil and religious rulers. His aspect showed no lack of zeal to maintain his heterodoxies, even at the stake. The woman wore a cleft stick on her tongue, inappropriate retribution for having wagged that unruly member against the elders of the church, and her countenance and gestures gave much cause to apprehend that, the moment the stick should be removed, a repetition of the offense would demand new ingenuity in chastising it. The above-mentioned individuals had been sentenced to undergo their various modes of ignominy for the space of one hour at noonday. But among the crowd were several whose punishment would be lifelong, some whose ears had been cropped like those of puppy dogs, others whose cheeks had been branded with the initials of their misdemeanors, one with his nostrils slit and seared, and another with a halter about his neck, which he was forbidden ever to take off or to conceal beneath his garments. Methinks he must have been grievously tempted to affix the other end of the rope to some convenient beam or bow. There was likewise a young woman with no mean share of beauty whose doom it was to wear the letter A on the breast of her gown in the eyes of all the world and her own children. And even her own children knew what that initial signified. Sporting with her infamy, the lost and desperate creature had embroidered the fatal token in scarlet cloth with golden thread in the nicest art of needlework, so that the capital A might have been thought to mean admirable or anything rather than adulterous. Let not the reader argue for many of these evidences of iniquity that the times of the Puritans were more vicious than our own, when, as we pass along the very street of this sketch, we discern no badge of infamy on man or woman. It was the policy of our ancestors to search out even the most secret sins, and expose them to shame without fear or fervor in the broadest light of the noonday sun. Were such the custom now, perchance we might find materials for a no less piquant sketch than the above. Except the malefactors whom we have described and the diseased or infirm persons the whole male population of the town between sixteen years and sixty were seen in the ranks of the train band. A few stately Native Americans and all the pomp and dignity of the Indian stood gazing at the spectacle. Their flint-headed arrows were but childish weapons compared to the matchlocks of the Puritans would have rattled harmlessly against the steel caps and hammered iron breastplates which enclosed each soldier in an individual fortress 
the valiant John Endicott glanced with an eye of pride at his sturdy followers and prepared to renew the martial toils of the day. Come, my stout hearts, quoth he, drawing his sword. Let us show these poor heathen that we can handle our weapons like men of might. Well for them, if they put us not to prove it in earnest. The iron-breasted company straightened their line, and each man drew the heavy butt of his matchlock close to his left foot, thus awaiting the orders of the captain. But as Endicott glanced right and left along the front, he discovered a personage at some little distance with whom it behooved him to hold a parley. It was an elderly gentleman, wearing a black cloak and band and a high-crowned hat, beneath which was a velvet skullcap, the whole being the garb of a Puritan minister. This reverend person bore a staff which seemed to have been recently cut in the forest, and his shoes were bemired as if he had been traveling on foot through the swamps of the wilderness. His aspect was perfectly that of a pilgrim, heightened also by an apostolic dignity. Just as Endicott perceived him, he laid aside his staff and stooped to drink at a bubbling fountain which gushed into the sunshine about a score of yards from the corner of the meeting house. But, ere the good man drank, he turned his face heavenward in thankfulness, and then, holding back his gray beard with one hand, he scooped up his simple draft in the hollow of the other. What, ho, good Mr. Williams, shouted Endicott, you are welcome back again to our own town of peace. How does our worthy governor Winthrop? And what news from Boston? The governor hath his health, worshipful sir, answered Roger Williams, now resuming his staff and drawing near. And for the news, here is a letter which, knowing I was to travel hitherward today, his excellency committed to my charge. Belike it contains tidings of much import, for a ship arrived yesterday from England. Mr. Williams, the minister of Salem, and of course known to all the spectators, had now reached the spot where Endicott was standing under the banner of his company and put the governor's epistle in his hand. The broad seal was impressed with Winthrop's coat of arms. Endicott hastily unclosed the letter and began to read, while, as his eye passed down the page, a wrathful change came over his manly countenance. The blood glowed through it till it seemed to be kindling with an internal heat, nor was it unnatural to suppose that his breastplate would likewise become red-hot with the angry fire of the bosom which it covered. All right. <clears throat> Cut this a little bit. 
arriving at the conclusion, he shook the letter fiercely in his hand so that it rustled as loud as the flag above his head. Black tidings these, Mr. William, said he. Blacker never came to New England. Dallas, you know their purport. Yea, truly, replied Roger Williams, for the governor consulted respecting this matter with my brethren in the ministry at Boston, and my opinion was likewise asked. And His Excellency entreats you by me that the news be not suddenly noised abroad, lest the people be stirred up into some outbreak, and thereby give the king and the archbishop a handle against us. The governor is a wise man, a wise man, and a meek and moderate, said Endicott, setting his teeth grimly. Nevertheless, I must do according to my own best judgment. There is neither man, woman, nor child in New England, but has a concern as dear as life in these tidings. And if John Endicott's voice be loud enough, man, woman, and child, shall hear them. Soldiers, wheel into a hollow square. Oh, good people, here are the news for one and of all of you. The soldiers closed in around their captain, and he and Roger Williams stood together under the banner of the Red Cross, while the women and the aged men pressed forward, and the mothers held up their children to look Endicott in the face. A few taps of the drum gave signal for silence and attention. Fellow soldiers, fellow exiles, began Endicott, speaking under strong excitement, yet powerfully restraining it. Wherefore did ye leave your native country? Wherefore, I say, have we left the green and fertile fields cottages, or perchance the old gray halls where we were born and bred, the churchyards where our forefathers lie buried, wherefore have we come hither to set up our own tombstones in a wilderness, a howling wilderness it is. The wolf and the bear meet us within the halloo of our dwellings. The native lieth in wait for us, in the dismal shadow of the woods. The stubborn roots of the trees break our plowshares when we would till the earth. Our children cry for bread, and we must dig in the sands of the seashore to satisfy them. Wherefore, I say again, have we sought this country of a rugged soil and wintry sky? Was it not for the enjoyment of our civil rights was it not for liberty to worship God according to our conscience? Call you this liberty of conscience, interrupted a voice on the steps of the meeting house. It was the wanton gospeler. A sad and quiet smile flitted across the mild visage of Roger Williams. But Endicott, in the excitement of the moment, shook his sword wrathfully at the culprit, an ominous gesture from a man like him. What hast thou to do with conscience, 
thou knave, cried he. I said liberty to worship God, not license to profane and ridicule him. Break not upon my speech, or I will lay thee neck and heels till this time tomorrow. Hearken to me, friends, nor he that accursed rhapsodus. As I was saying, we have sacrificed all things, and have come to a land whereof the old world hath scarcely heard, that we might make a new world unto ourselves, and painfully seek a path from hence to heaven. But what think ye now? This son of a Scotch tyrant, this grandson of a papistical and adulterous Scotch woman, whose death proved that a golden crown doth not always save an anointed head from the block. Nay, brother, nay, interposed Mr. Williams, thy words are not meet for a secret chamber, far less for a public street. Hold thy peace, Roger Williams, answered Endicott imperiously. My spirit is wiser than thine for the business now in hand. I tell ye, fellow exiles, that Charles of England and Laud, our bitter sweet persecutor, archpriest of Canterbury, are resolute to pursue us even hither. They are taking counsel, saith this letter, to send over a governor general in whose breast shall be deposited all the law and equity of the land. They are minded also to establish the idolatrous forms of English episcopacy, so that when Laud shall kiss the Pope's toe as Cardinal of Rome, he may deliver New England, bound hand and foot, into the power of his master. A deep groan from the auditors, a sound of wrath, as well as fear and sorrow, responded to this intelligence. Look ye to it, brethren, resumed Endicott, with increasing energy. If this king and this arch prelate have their will, we shall briefly behold a cross on the spire of this tabernacle which we have builded and a high altar within its walls, with wax tapers burning round it and noonday. We shall hear the sacring bell and the voices of the Romish priests saying the mass. But think ye, Christian men, that these abominations may be suffered without a sword drawn, without a shot fired, without blood spilled, yea, on the very stairs of the pulpit. No. Be ye strong of hand and stout of heart, here we stand on our own soil, which we have bought with our goods, which we have won with our swords, which we have cleared with our axes, which we have tilled with the sweat of our brows, which we have sanctified with our prayers to the God that brought us hither. Who shall enslave us here? What have we to do with this mitred prelate? with his crowned king, what have we to do with England? 
Indica gazed round at the excited countenances of the people, now full of his own spirit, and then turned suddenly to the standard bearer who stood close behind him. Officer, lower your banner, said he. The officer obeyed, and brandishing his sword, Endicott thrust it through the cloth, and with his left hand, rent the red cross completely out of the banner. He then waved the tattered ensign above his head. Sacrilegious wretch, cried the high churchman in the pillory, unable longer to restrain himself. Thou hast rejected the symbol of our holy religion. Treason, treason, roared the royalist in the stocks. He hath defaced the king's banner. Before God and man, I will avouch the deed, answered Endicott. Beat a flourish, drummer. Shout, soldiers and people, in honor of the ensign of New England. Neither pope nor tyrant hath part in it now. With a cry of triumph, the people gave their sanction to one of the boldest exploits which our history records. And forever, honor be the name of Endicott. We look back through the mist of ages and recognize in the rending of the Red Cross from New England's banner the first omen of that deliverance which our fathers consummated after the bones of the stern Puritan had lain more than a century in the dust. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.